This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, calls to end Australia's over-reliance on Pacific agricultural workers. I think there's a risk in moving from an over-reliance on one source, backpackers immediately to an over-reliance on another source, the Pacific. And how a children's book might help save a PNG's endangered swordfish. It's where you can make learning fun, but also where you begin the process of understanding a problem that you might get a little bit involved in solving. And we'll also find out about that off-colour joke that uh, made, um, seemed to make at least, all of Pacific Twitter groan. Tuvalu, was that the one who wanted to stay Tuvalu. the most? Yeah, well, they're, they're about to go underwater. So <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope there's snorkels on. Maybe he should speak out, first of all. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, the U.S. territory of Guam has come up with a way to sniff out invasive species. Its university is training dogs to hunt pests and keep them at bay. Reporter Carl Evans spoke with project leader Garrett Setsetsa, who said it could be a new way of protecting the Pacific from dangerous insects. So in 2021, we got a three-year grant from the U.S. Department of Interior Office of Insular Affairs to start a detector dog team to be able to find invasive species on primarily outbound cargo, vehicles and aircraft, as well as within controlled areas or grounds of Guam's port. Well, I guess there's no shortage of invasive species uh, within Guam. You mentioned that these invasive species often are found on cars and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about what these invasive species are? Yes. Our dogs are specifically trained right now to look for the adult coconut rhinoceros beetle. We have plans to look for, to have our dogs trained on the little fire ant, which is something that's native to South America. And it's kind of made its way westward across the Pacific and is now on Guam. Guam is, is certainly kind of, unfortunately, like the picture of like invasive species with all of the movements that we have here from since World War II and up until present. We have huge presence of U.S. military bases here. It's the largest island in the Marianas Islands, as well as in Micronesia. We have over a million revenue tons of goods that go between Guam and the United States, Hawaii, um, and Asia. And so it really presents a huge biosecurity pressure and threats that we have new invasive species that are introduced, um, as well as being uh, kind of a jumping off point for other invasive species that are that are uh, found on Guam to move to other Pacific islands. And so that's what we're trying to do with our dogs is to prevent that aspect of it from, from moving from Guam to other Pacific islands that have less resources than we do. And what kind of threat do these invasive species um, pose to islands like Guam and other Pacific islands? Like most Pacific islands, the coconut tree is kind of what they always call as the, the tree of life, you know, from the mm-hmm. fruit itself, the coconut, to the leaves and the wood. It, it, all parts of it is used in every aspect. Even though we've become a little bit more modern and rely less on, on it, we still value it. Definitely um, in terms of our tourism, you know, people come to the islands and they think they want to see palm trees, coconut trees, uh, drink from a coconut. And so it has a huge amount of value. Uh, since 2007, when the rhino beetle was first detected on Guam, the way that just the island looks, and you can go down to kind of our tourist district in Tumon, 
and you see the you see just sticks of of what used to be a a, a coconut tree um and and then the coconut trees that are around a majority of them and they just look unhealthy and so i think for a lot of people it really takes away the beauty of the island and so it's something that that we're hoping to combat with this new tool well, I guess the the really fascinating element about this is that it's it's dogs who are who are finding these pests and not humans. What makes dogs the most qualified to do this job and not humans? <laughs> I think it's pretty simple. You can probably we can all relate to this. Uh, we know that dogs can smell people before they even see them, so their sense of smell is is, is far better than than humans. Um, so that one is is certainly one of the most important factors. They also just it's it's really cost effective. Um, we were able to pick up our dogs from uh, the local shelters. They're just really excellent. They they work for food, so they're food driven. Um, it's to them, it's a nat- it's a game, um, and so we use their natural ability to smell and their natural desire to hunt and eat to find the things that we're able to we're not able to find. And they can search a car or several pallets of cargo in a few minutes, where it would take you know human a couple hours or a day or two. So they're very effective and we hope that we'll be able to find our first adult rhino beetle. So we train the dogs to sit when they detect a rhino beetle. We don't encourage them to eat the, the beetle. Um, I don't really know exactly what would happen, but they don't <laughs> seem to good. care for it too much. <laughs> um, but we do collect them and secure them and then they would be um, you know, destroyed at a, a later point. And one of the other interesting elements of this, you mentioned it a little bit before, was that you take the jo- the dogs from animal shelters. Does this help to address a, uh, a stray dog problem within Guam as well by giving these dogs who, who don't have a home, I guess, purpose? It may not serve practically um, in the sense that, well, one, we have far more strays than I believe um, we can find jobs for. But I think it does serve as an inspiration to the public to to see that that strays can be, you know, trained and and be useful. So there really is. We hope that it's an inspiration for people to want to go check out the local shelters if they're just looking for a pet. But um, we work with the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Wildlife Services. They um, that are present here on Guam. Uh, they have over twenty or maybe even thirty. And dog teams and all of the dogs that are from their teams that are trained to look for the brown tree snake, they're also found in local shelters, or sorry, in shelters in the United States. Ah, oh, it's, it's it's fascinating. It's it's a great way of yeah, I guess you know making making use of of these dogs who, who who've been unable so far to find a home. And just lastly, before we go, you mentioned uh, it was a pilot project. I know four dogs uh, graduated. I believe it was just last week. Do you anticipate this project will be something that will go on long term? That is certainly our hopes. You know, um, I think my position as the leader um, it has been to kind of position this project as something that is sellable, um, but also, oh, I guess from the perspective of that, it's a co- very cost-effective. Prevention in terms of bio, um, I'm sorry, um, in, in terms of invasive species management or biosecurity is always the most cost-efficient. So we can prevent um invasive species from moving to, from our island to other islands or being introduced to our island, then of course that's going to be the most uh, cost-effective method as opposed to waiting for come and then, you know, eradicate it after. Um, but it's our hope that either the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, or the local Guam Department of Agriculture picks up this program 
Um, and if we can also train the dog on more than one invertebrate uh, invasive species, then it really allows this kind of opens the door to the possibility that we can train dogs um, on more than just one insect. And they, we can continue this, like, if a new insect becomes a challenge, then we can train another, um, train the dog on that. And then hopefully be this kind of like revolving, like, system where we always have dogs that are ready for the newest set that may come to our island. That was Project Leader of the Guam Invasive Species Directed Dog Program, Garrett Satessa there, speaking to our reporter, Kyle Evans. And stay tuned because later on the show, we'll find out what Vanuatu is doing to deal with its rhinoceros beetle problem as well. I'll give you a hint. It doesn't involve dogs. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Thanks for joining us today on the show. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. And it might have been just a few seconds of TV banter during the coronation, but some host's off-colour joke has raised the ire of some Pacific Islanders, including the Foreign Minister of Tuvalu. Let's hear the offending remarks first from Sky News' coverage over the weekend. It's very clear. He will serve as long as any particular nation wants him to. Yeah, Tuvalu. Was that the one who wanted to stay Tuvalu. the most? Tuvalu, yeah, well, they're, they're about to go underwater. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope there's snorkels on. Maybe he should speak out, first of all. Oof, the, well, it might come as no surprise, but those comments received a furious response on Twitter. Tuvalu's foreign minister, uh, foreign affairs minister Simon Coffey asked, how can anyone find humour in the potential loss of entire countries and cultures due to climate change? Tongan activist and youth leader Elizabeth Kite also took issue with the comment and joins us now on the program. Good morning to you, Elizabeth. Good morning. Um, so what offended you about those remarks? Um, the remarks were completely offensive and it should be offensive to anyone who's alive. It's, you know, um, making light of something that is quite serious, not just for us in the Pacific, um, but the world. Climate change isn't a Pacific problem. It is a global problem. And so that it's really problematic that um, these remarks were even thought, let alone said, and aired for something that should have been really a joyous occasion for everyone across the Commonwealth. Yeah, because you you did make that interesting point, Elizabeth, on Twitter as well, that, you know, they're making fun of of climate change, I guess, of of countries like Tuvalu, as they say, sinking. But, you know, they're also affected by climate change as well, isn't it? Well, yes, there are countless reports about the UK's, you know, rising um, heat during summer, longer, you know, shorter winters and longer summers and things like that. But um, so it is it is a problem for us all. But um, for them to you have to be a special sort of evil to actually be able to make fun of a country that's stinking like Tuvalu and say those words and find that thing, find those words funny. Mm. Um and it's quite deluded for them to think that this is just a Tuvalu or Pacific Islander problem when their country as well is facing the impacts of climate change. But Elizabeth, I, I wonder if you can explain why these remarks from, you know, these Sky News presenters matter. I mean, it sounds like it wasn't scripted. It was just something that came up. Um, you know, one one presenter said something, then the other one responded and they made this, you know, quote unquote joke. Why Why do you believe this sort of offhand remarks really matter in the grand scheme? It matters because people's lives are at stake here. That's why it matters. 
it's um it would be as if it would be if I sat here and made fun of those in Ukraine who are suffering from the war or you know the British uh, people who are suffering from the housing um crisis those things just aren't funny that's why we don't say we don't think those things to be funny we don't say these things so it's quite serious um I don't believe their um network actually receives too many views which I'm grateful for but aside from that these things just shouldn't be thought by any human being. It's really evil and heartless to, to say. I mean, it's it, to say such things. Yes, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the views there, Elizabeth, but it's it's quite it's yeah. it's quite funny. I mean, you know, you you said that Sky News or at least the coverage might not have um, received so much attention, but it did on Twitter. At least this clip of that moment where they where they did seem to mock Tuvalu and, and climate change more broadly. It received so much attention, not just from yourself, but as I mentioned, the the foreign affairs minister of Tuvalu weighed in, um, you know, commentators, um, you know, movers and shakers across the Pacific weighed in. Even the British High Commissioner to Fiji, Brian Jones, he commented on Twitter saying the comments were based on ignorance. I mean, is... Despite the, you know, as you said, the the um, offensiveness of the remarks, are you sort of um, encouraged by the fact that there is such condemnation of of what was said? Yes. Well, Brian's um, his excellency is absolutely right, and those comments aren't reflective of how the British government feel. We work very closely with them here, um, you know, to figure out how we can work together to work against climate change. Also, the person that they were supposed to be talking about, King Charles, um, he is one of the world's biggest champions for climate change. Um, so it was funny for them to make those remarks, but um, I don't believe their words sorry i keep looking down because i'm watching the clip um (laughs) i don't believe uh their words hold too much uh weight because the rest of the world realize the how severe climate change really is and they've come to our aid and that's how we feel at the pacific but you know just having a few individuals um not understand the how serious climate change is is quite hurtful because yes like you said they do have a platform and this particular um uh segment has been shared across social media now social media is very powerful to get your message out and um it is yes it's very encouraging to have the support of i saw it even some uh pacific diplomats uh mm. share their thoughts too which is uh quite unknown for us in the pacific uh we keep it very peaceful most of the time but um we're fighting for our lives now and so you'll start to see more of us speaking out uh thankfully and yeah we have the right support on our side too now, now um, that that one joke aside, which you know, as you've outlined, is quite offensive, and and why it's quite offensive to so many Pacific Islanders, and not just Pacific Islanders, but people around the world, we're all facing the the threat yeah. of climate change. But is is there a risk? I mean, I, I wanted to ask you as well, Elizabeth, as an activist. You know, we are talking so much about the threat of climate change, how countries could be sinking, could have their livelihoods threatened. The the For so many people's mind, when they think about Pacific countries, their thought is the fact that they're, um, they're sinking, that they're affected by climate change, that um, that climate change is the main priority of all their governments. Is this an outcome of that sort of emphasis on on the 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 you know the death the 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 loss of life the loss of livelihoods in in the Pacific? Is there a need to almost change the image so people th- when they hear Tuvalu think of something else other than climate change? 
Um, well, it is our most important issue that we face. Um, and so I don't think there is a need to emphasize anything else. If anything, you, people should be wanting to see us um, while our land is still very beautiful and we have a lot to offer. Um, it's quite special because uh, our time is limited and um, that's a really important message for people to know. There's no uh, point in flowering things up for other people to feel better about themselves. Uh, this is our reality. We have to face it every day and we've been forced to face this every day. And so those who are forced to do it should come along with us. Okay, um, and we do have a, a response from Kathy Letty, who's once one of the presenters there on Sky News. Um, she said she did not mean to be glib about Tuvalu. Climate change is horrific and terrifying. What do you think of that um, answer, Elizabeth? Do you think that's a satisfactory follow-up from her? Sure, but she really should have thought of that at the time of making those r ridiculous comments. Indeed. Um, if you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat, we're um, joined by Elizabeth Kita. Uh, she is an activist from Tonga and youth leader. Um, and I, I do apologize, um, Elizabeth. I think I mispronounced your, your name at the top of this uh, interview. Okay. Uh, it is Kita, not Kite, as I said earlier. Um, we are talking about yeah. that, um, the furor around that um, Sky News. I mean, we're pretty offensive remarks made by presenters there um, around Tuvalu and, and more broadly. Yes. Very very offensive. Um, now, do you do you think there there is a a, a, a a way here that we can make good out of this? You know, there is some attention, at least in, on Twitter now. What what is the way? I guess media journalists like myself, um, people across the media sphere, can can learn from this incident and and learn about how we speak about climate change and and the Pacific um, in a better way. <laughs> Yeah, I do think a lot of journalists, even up to journalists in Australia, which is uh, interesting because we are in the same region, um, can learn more about what it is that we are facing here, the re the realities um, and how we feel and allowing us to speak um, for ourselves as well. Um, yeah, I think journalists just need to educate themselves better on the topic and uh, how it is that we are here in the front line, what it really means to us Um yeah. And um, I, I think uh, I wanted to touch on just finally one of the remarks you said, I mean, in your tweet, and you also mentioned here that King Charles is one of the biggest champions for climate action and, and the British government as well has been a, a champion in, in um, working with the Pacific to combat climate change or, or the worst effects of climate change. I believe you've mm -hmm. actually met um, King Charles, is that right? And you've met the Queen as well um, when, when she was alive. What was that experience life? Were you able to talk to them about climate action? Yes, uh, the Queen, not, I didn't. Uh, and that experience is one I will never forget. She was really quite lovely. And I got to meet her twice, which was even more special. Um, she was really quite funny. Um, but we did get to talk about social media, which was really interesting. Uh, she's really uh, knowledgeable about things, uh, apps like WhatsApp, Twitter um, and Instagram which was really cool. Surprising. I would have never think that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yes, with King Charles, I had met him last year and uh, we did touch on Tonga and just uh, the tsunami that had just taken place here and how uh, resilient our people were to, you know, quickly recover. Um, and uh, his um, 
wife, Queen Camilla, came into the conversation too. Um, so this is a topic that's really quite important to them both. Um, and yeah. Well, um, it seems like it's gotten more attention now in Britain. Well, let, let's hope so, um, at least amongst the media there, thanks to these Thanks. So what, what can we say to these uh, offensive remarks from Sky News? Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Mala. That was a Tongan act- activist and youth leader, Elizabeth Kite, um, who founded Take the Lead, an organization that empowers the voices of young, young people in Tonga. Finding seasonal work in Australian farms is often the way thousands of Pacific Islanders come to migrate and live in the country. This migration is often temporary and unstable, and there are growing calls to change that, including now from within Australia's agricultural industry. Richard Shannon from Australia's National Farmers Federation says the sector has an over-reliance on Pacific Island workers and wants new migration policy to change this. But could a more diverse workforce jeopardise Pacific Islander jobs? Megan Hughes spoke to Mr Shannon to get his thoughts. Look, it doesn't appear to have a silver bullet to solve the shortage of workers in agriculture. No, um, I think it is an opportunity. Um, the, the report recommends a longer-term strategic view of our uh, migration system as part of our labour mix. Um, and I think it's a great opportunity for agriculture to make a case for a more secure, more reliable, more productive workforce uh, into the future. So it's a, an opportunity for our industry to, to make its case. And what would something like that look like for you? I think coming out of COVID, um, we've recognised uh, there was a bit of a silver lining through all that disruption that um, it presented an opportunity to take a fresh look at our um, labour supply uh, before COVID, up to 80% of our seasonal workforce uh, was comprised of backpackers here on the working holiday maker visa. Obviously, they more or less evaporated. Um, and we've since developed new uh, sort of new um, supply of labour, particularly from the Pacific. But I think there's a risk in moving from an over-reliance on one source, backpackers, immediately to an over-reliance on another source, the Pacific. Um, as an industry, we need a reliable and diversified labour supply mix. Um, we want to see workers uh, arrive uh, into Australia from a, a number of different countries. and We don't want all our eggs in the one basket. I think that's been made clear as the Pacific program has expanded. Some of those Pacific nations have raised concern and issue that too many of their citizens are moving and coming to Australia to work. and It's putting pressure on their own communities and their own economy. So um, I think moving forward, we need to uh, be advocating for a more diversified um, supply of seasonal labour. And so would that, you know, be looking at different visa types or different, um, I guess, uh, agreements with other countries? Yeah, I think we're open-minded to, to exploring um, how we increase the number of countries and diversify that labour supply um, moving forward. I think, obviously, the 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 current government has been very clear in its statements around what was previously referred to as the ag visa i think moving forward though we we need we do need to to keep that in mind the idea that we need visa programs in place um, for the agriculture industry but particularly the horticulture industry 
the, the ag visa didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't a random suggestion. It was uh, designed to address a specific need, just as the the working holiday maker program, uh, the backpacker program, was designed to to meet in large part the need of horticulture. It's difficult for us to recruit people, and so as these um, visa programs are opened up to other industries, we are at risk of of becoming insecure horticulture and agriculture um, for our labour. So we need to keep that in mind. And some of the proposed changes as well looked at tightening protections for workers and strengthening them. And, uh, you know, there was a suggestion of being, um, for seasonal workers being allowed to move to off, say, one farm that they may have come over to Australia with if they weren't being treated adequately there. You know, does the industry support these um, protections which could end up, you know, hurting agricultural industry itself? Look, um, I think greater um, flexibility is is a good thing. Um, I think we're probably reasonably inefficient in allocating our labour around the country. Being able to move between employers is a good thing, but uh, it comes with a couple of caveats. Um, there needs to be someone who's making a, a, a judgment on on whether people are moving and, and making raising real issues with their treatment by their employer to make sure that system is not being gamed. And also we need to protect the interests of those employers who are sponsoring or, or paying, um, particularly the upfront airfares for, for recruiting uh, folks into Australia, that they're not left holding holding the baby after um, after they move on. So, yeah, we need to protect their interests as well. And obviously all these discussions are having uh, are taking place at the moment, especially as this report's come out. Is the National Farmers Federation part of these talks to get the agricultural industry um, represented in these discussions? Yeah, look, Minister Watt coming out of the Jobs and Skills Summit um, has convened an agricultural workforce working group and migration is um, certainly on the table as part of that broader agenda. Um, the NFF certainly has a seat around that table and um, we'll be using that particular forum and others to, to press the, the interests of agriculture. That was Executive Officer to NFF's Horticulture Council, Richard Shannon, speaking there to Megan Hughes. Inside Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia, hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league, featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. It's time on Pacific Beat to find out what's been um, making headlines around the region. And to do that, we're joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Now, China has accused Australia of undermining Fiji and China's relationship. How exactly is that? Well, they've virtually accused Australia of trying to sabotage uh, its relation with Fiji as questions swirl over whether Fiji will cut security ties, uh, or security and law enforcement ties with Beijing. So this is reported by the ABC and it centres around a 2011 police cooperation agreement uh, which Fiji signed with China under the former PM. Uh, Sidovani Rambuka has repeatedly said he would scrap that to limit law enforcement ties to countries with similar systems 
to that previous administration. And uh, that's caused the Chinese embassy uh, in, Fiji, in Fiji to issue probably its sharpest statement yet on the issue, uh, saying that uh, it hoped relevant parties would abandon ideological prejudice and view law enforcement and police cooperation between China and Fiji objectively and rationally, while also taking aim at the US and Australia, suggesting that other nations had deliberately tried to disrupt China's cooperation with Fiji. Yes, very interesting, and very interesting to see whether those remarks will sway the Rambuka government um, this way and that when it comes to those agreements. They have recently said that they are still considering those agreements, that they haven't you know, come to a um, decision on, on what to do there. So, yes, very um, heated remarks there from from China, and um, we'll see what uh, what comes of it. Um, now let's head to, to Samoa, where a uh, minister's wife, an MP's wife, has has filed a complaint with police against a journalist from the uh, Samoa Observer. Why is that? Yeah, look, buckle up. This is a bit of a messy one. So it centres around, around an American Samoan sea vessel, the Kite Runner, uh, and what appears to be the lodging of uh, some paperwork that saw it seized by police for illegally entering Samoan waters. So this is reported by the Samoan Observer. No surprises there. Um, and the newspaper was tipped off that it was actually a cabinet minister who organised the documentation for that vessel. Uh, the reporter, from what I understand, has then confronted the minister responsible, uh, which sparked a confrontation inside the minister's office uh, with the minister accusing the reporter of trying to tarnish uh, his reputation. And what happened after that? Yeah, well, this is where it gets uh, all a little bit messy. So according to the newspaper, uh, the minister didn't let the reporter leave uh, until the matter was resolved. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, it said the minister, the minister's cousin, it was the minister's cousin who actually worked for the owner of that vessel who asked the minister to lodge that paperwork. The minister then called his wife to come and assist with the questions from the reporter. That's and, very odd. And file a police report. A police officer then showed up who was also a cousin of the minister, mm -hmm. according to the article. Getting so, all the family involved. Yeah, that's right. So it's all very messy over what seems to be over, you know, somewhat maybe sloppy paperwork just around these uh, these boat, boat entry requirements. Ultimately, though, it was the Prime Minister of Samoa who told a press conference that the boat ultimately should have been seized. But unfortunately, it looks like the, rep the reporter has caught the brunt of it. Yes, yeah, very, I, I guess one would say it was quite concerning to see a reporter being pulled in like that for, it sounds like, from the information we have, doing quite div diligent reporting on the issue. But mind you, this is all, it sounds like you were saying, Carl, reported from the Samoa Observer about one of their journalists doing one of their, their jobs. Um, so I'm sure the, the minister, well, I mean, I'll say perhaps the minister and his wife might have another way of looking at things. <laughs> but as the way as the way you detailed there, Kyle, it certainly is in in an interesting situation. Let's leave it at that. Um, now to a story that you've been following for quite some time. The Australian Indigenous men's cricket team has claimed a series win in Vanuatu. Is that right? That's a shame. Yeah, that is a shame, yeah. No, so uh, Australia defeated Vanuatu by nine wickets uh, in the third match of that four-game T20 series. Uh, a game high from uh, a game high 43 ones from wicketkeeper Tyron Lydiard 
uh, lay the platform for that win. We actually had him on the show earlier in the year. Um, however, the real story, I think, was actually what happened in Game 2, where Vanuatu actually snatched a uh, unlikely vi- victory from the Aussies. Um, they only posted a, a relatively modest 8 for 107 in that match. However, they managed to bowl out the Indigenous Australians 10 runs shy of that target. So they didn't get swept. They did They did claim uh, one scout for the series. So, no, nah, fantastic to see that. Oh, well, that's lovely. And is this going to be an annual thing, Kyle, this, this match? I don't actually know. I, I hope so. Um, yeah. it'd, be, it'd be great if it was. We need a rematch. And uh, let's see if Vanuatu can do it next time. Uh, Kyle, thank you for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. And I believe you've lined up a story about rhinoceros beetles. It seems to be the theme of today. Uh, is that right? We'll be heading to Vanuatu. That's right. I've really gone deep into rhinoceros beetles uh, for the last for the last <laughs> week uh, with the opening story and then the next one coming up. So uh, looking forward to hearing it. Yes, yes. We'll be finding out what the Vanuatu government, they've got another unique um, way we heard about Guam sniffing, using sniffing dogs to get rhinoceros beetles. Now we'll hear about another way that Vanuatu has chosen to uh, deal with their insect problem. You're listening to Pacific Beat right here on ABC Radio Australia this uh, Tuesday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. How much would you pay for one coconut rhinoceros beetle? Well, the government of Vanuatu has an answer. It is buying them for 30 vatu. That's about 30 cents here in Australia for one beetle. Leisongi Bulisulu is in charge of the Cash for Beetles program and joins us now. Good, Good morning. morning. Good morning. Good morning uh, to you, Leisongi. So nice to hear you. Um, so why is the Vanuatu government uh, buying coconut rhinoceros beetles? Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you for the question. Yes, uh, we had uh, the incursion of the coconut rhinoceros beetle in 2019, and then for uh, over three or four years, we have been trying our best to contain it and manage it on one island, on um, the main island of Evate and the offshore islands. And we, we have tried a number of ways to uh, manage it and contain it so it doesn't spread to other islands. We have tried sanitation. We uh, have physically looked for the beetle and we burn. We destroy all the breeding sites. We have used a fungus, metharizium fungus, and we're in the stages of drying out the use of virus. Um, So far, what we have been using has been successful to contain it still on one island and the offshore islands. And we now the government has decided that why don't we try another approach? Mm. Why don't we start buying beetles? So that is why we came up with the uh, the idea of um, cash for beetle, oh. uh, uh, allowing the public to yes bring the beetles. So we give them a small incentive. Oh, very, very interesting. Yes, I understand. It's 30 vatu, about 30 cents here in Australia that, that um, the government is paying for the beetles. What will um, the government do once they collect these beetles? Uh, once we collect the beetles, so the, the, the main idea behind the activity is just to, um, to reduce the population of beetles as much as possible. So once we get people collecting the beetles, they 
at the moment they're bringing it to us at the office and we we're keeping the records of the areas name of the areas where the the beetles are coming from and um the um <clears throat> After we collect the beetles and the crabs, we're going to uh, burn them. We we destroy them, incinerate them, because okay. the main idea behind that is we we want to reduce the population of the beetle as much as possible. So once they, and we we also we we're buying. We're only buying the live beetles. We're not buying the dead ones. So we encourage people when they find the the live ones, they bring it over together with the crabs. And um, one one correction as of yesterday, the um, the executive, the MALF executive, that is the Ministry of um, Agriculture, Livestock, uh, Fisheries, Forestry, and Biosecurity, the MALF executive has amended the the price of the beetle, so it has gone uh, a little bit uh, higher than the thirty cents one before. Oh really? So how much is it now? Yes. So starting from today, we'll be buying it at uh, one hundred fatu, one dollar, wow. something like that. Yes. Per wow. So more than three beetle. times. Oh, the adult beetle <laughs> yes. is in one hundred, and how much is for the grubs? It's one hundred fatu, and the grubs will be paid at five hundred fatu, five bucks. Wow. For a kilo, we're going to weigh that. So yeah, the executive has met. Uh, last week, and they've decided that maybe we we increase the price. So, as starting from today, the price is going to change. Well, yes, from thirty fatu to one hundred fatu, and from two. Yes, yes, that sounds like quite a lot, Le Songi. I mean, I guess any any beetle hunters listening in Vanuatu will be very interested in that. Um, if you are just tuning into Pacific Beat right now, we are speaking to Le Songi Bulisulu. We're talking about this Cash for Beetles program in Vanuatu to help combat the rhinoceros beetle spread. I mean, Le Songi, can you explain to our listeners why um, what what risks the rhinoceros beetle poses? Why why does the government want to get rid of them? I think we're having some connection issues. I, I imagine, you know, as Le Songi did say the name, I'm sure she was about to say, as the name suggests, it was um, to do with uh, the coconut. Um, the coconut is what the rhinoceros beetle eats, um, and hence the name, the coconut rhinoceros beetle. Um, is that what you were about to say, Le Songi, that this uh, rhinoceros beetle eats coconut trees? Yeah, it it's uh, actually it feeds on the leaves or the fronds, the coconut fronds where when they are still they are still young and they they're still enclosed. The the, the beetle feeds it drills, it tunnels the young coconut leaves, and then usually when the um, uh, when the leaves mature and they open up and then that is when we. That is when we know that it has been uh, damaged by the beetle. But again, that would be six or seven or eight months later. The beetle would have already moved away from that coconut onto uh, another coconut. Oh, gosh. So uh, so it can cause quite quite a lot of destruction and I, I guess affect people's livelihoods as well. Yeah. For us, um, we use coconuts for quite a number of things. We use the dry coconut nuts to uh, the milk, the coconut cream to, we use it to prepare our food in the kitchen. Um, we use the green coconuts 
to get the shoes out from that. Uh, we have the mama selling that to get the money. They sell that at the, uh, the roadside market or in the main markets. Um, they also make money out from the uh, coconuts, the nuts, the mature nuts. They also uh, sell that to make money. And then the, um, the uh, bigger companies, they use it as copra. We produce uh, copra or coconut oil. So, yes, it is, it, it is going to affect our livelihoods if most of the, um, the bigger plantations get affected by uh, coconut rhinoceros bitter. Yes, yes. Well, I guess the government has come up with this idea to pay, I mean, as you said, um, 100 for an adult, 100 vatu, about $1, yes. and then 500 vatu for a kilo of the grubs. Um, so, you know, perhaps perhaps you're opening up a new market. Um, people who, who were um, perhaps crying over their lost coconut plantations can now uh, get into beetle hunting and, and um, find <laughs> some income that way. Uh, Lei Songi, thank you so much for um, coming on our show. I can't wait to have you back on to hear about how this Cash for Beetles program has uh, has gone. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Le Songi Bulisulu. She is the senior plant officer at the Department of Biosecurity in Vanuatu. And we were talking about the government's new Cash for Beetles campaign. Pacific Beat. And that brings us for the uh, to the end of Pacific Beat for this Tuesday morning. Uh, recapping today's show, we looked back at an off-color joke that was made by news presenters in Britain by Sky News. It was during the coronation, and it, it raised the ire of some Pacific Islanders. Well, let's remind you of the offending remark first from Sky News. Tuvalu was that the one who wanted to stay the most? Yeah, well, they're, they're about to go underwater. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope there's snorkels on. Maybe he should speak out. First of all. Our guest earlier in the show was Tongan activist and youth leader Elizabeth Kite. She um, took issue of the comment and issued this remark. I think journalists just need to educate themselves better on the topic and uh, how it is that we are here in the front line, what it really means to us. Yes, some important guidance there for all journalists and media makers and everyone following uh, Pacific uh, Pacific news and issues like all of you, dear listeners, are. And you can get some more Pacific news and views right here on ABC Radio Australia. Do stay tuned. We have news coming up next. I'll be back with, back with you tomorrow morning. Until then, hope you have a lovely day. 